0: Welcome to worship. I'm Pastor Jason. We're so glad you're joining us in worship from Schweitzer Church. If this is your first time, let us know you're here. We'd love to send you a gift card. Today we're continuing our worship series as we look at the the book of Revelation, the New Testament. We're going to be hearing about the church of Thyatira and other elements that are included in this book that the Apostle John writes. I'm so glad you're here with us. If you'd like to go deeper with the sermon, you'd like to find a way to connect, go to Schweizer.church slash next. You'll find sermon discussion questions, you'll find groups and people that you can connect with. We'd encourage you to do that today. Next up is Stephanie, and she's going to share with us some things that are happening this week at Schweitzer.
1: Hi, I'm Stephanie. Welcome to Schweitzer. We're in a new month and there are a lot of things happening around here. As you settle into fall, there are many, many groups and classes you can be a part of, meeting all through the week, as well as on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1030. You can find out all about these groups at schweitzer.church slash groups or by downloading the Church Center app. In addition to our regular groups and classes, we would love to have you join us for our second season lunch, which happens on Thursday, October 6th at 11.30 a.m. Or for all the guys out there, join us for our Guys Breakfast Gathering on Saturday, October 8th at 8 a.m. And this is open to guys of all ages. We would love to see you there. Then, coming up on Sunday, October 16th, from 7 to 8 p.m., our Modern Worship team is hosting a special night of worship. This will be a beautiful evening together as we worship through music, scripture, and prayer. And if you are new to Schweitzer and all of this sounds like a lot, a great first step is for you to join us for our all-in Get to Know Schweitzer Lunch, which is free and happening next Sunday, October 9th, after the late service. Here, you'll find out more about everything going on at Schweitzer, what we do, what we believe, and you'll get your questions answered as well. This is a great way for you to figure out a way to take a new step. You can sign up for the lunch at the Blue Booth in the lobby today, and we look forward to seeing you there. We are so glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. Let's continue with worship.
0: Thanks, Stephanie. If you're worshiping with us live today, we'd encourage you to take a moment, say hello to people in the chat room. If you'd like some prayer, there are people who are waiting to pray with you in the prayer room. Now, we hear through the Old Testament and repeat in the New Testament. We're called into worship, to worship the Lord with our whole being, with our heart, our head, uh, everything we have. The Lord invites us. So let us take up and worship together in spirit and in truth with our heart, mind, body, and soul. come to pray, I'd like to invite you to join me in a prayer that comes from the book Living Room Liturgies. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now let's pray the prayer Jesus taught his disciples. When with one voice we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There are a lot of ministries that take place through, the, through Schweitzer Church. One of the ministries that's really impactful and doesn't get a lot of press, publicity, is the prayer ministry. A lot of people are involved behind the scenes. We've got some folks today to share with you what some of the prayer ministry looks like at Schweitzer and through Schweitzer. So let's take a listen. Hi,
2: I'm Marsha Mencken and I want to talk to you today about the prayer ministry here at Schweitzer Church and more specifically about this prayer wall that's behind me. So what you might not know is that behind each block of wood like I'm holding here there's a prayer written on it. So now you have the opportunity anytime you're in the church or before or during or after Sunday services to come over to the prayer wall side there's paper and pencil on the tables write out your prayers and fold them up, tuck them in between the boards. And there's a prayer team who prays over these periodically. And then we take those prayers and we put them in the prayer room and they're prayed over. After another period of time, all the written prayers are taken to the garden and then they're burned and scattered in the garden. And um, we have this continual prayer ministry going on for you. Now here's Mary Ann to talk about the healing prayer ministry that we have at Schweitzer.
3: Hi, I'm Mary Ann Gustin, and I help oversee the healing prayer ministry here at Schweitzer. Our prayer ministry desires to just help people connect with Jesus through prayer to receive the healing and wholeness that they want in their lives. We're not counselors, we're not advisors, but we have been trained in very practical and balanced ways to pray for healing and to help people come to the fullness that Christ wants them to have in their lives. Some of the ways that we do this is through healing prayer services, and we also have uh, personal prayer appointments that we make with people who need to have just some more time to talk about some of the struggles they may be going through, and um, just to give the Lord time bring about the healing He desires in their life. These appointments uh, last about an hour and you'll meet and pray with two members of our prayer team.
2: Prayer is such an important part of who we are and what we do here at Schweitzer. If you'd ever like prayer after the services on Sunday, there are people ready to pray with you in the prayer room. If you'd like to learn more about our prayer ministry or schedule an appointment for prayer, go to Prayer
0: it's so good to hear about that ministry of prayer and to know that it's among us that we can be recipients we can also be a part of what's happening there this ministry of prayer and a lot of other ministries are made possible because people are generous with their energies with their gifts with their resources you can give today to the ministry of Switzer by going to switzer.church slash give by using a church center app thank you so much for your generous giving next up is week four of the Revelation series. Let's dive on in.
4: welcome today. My name is Spencer. I'm so glad that you're here with us. Today is part four of our series on the most interesting book of the Bible, and that is Revelation. Now, this series is a little different than normal. Um, for one, we're talking about different kinds of things. I mean, Revelation is full of really weird things. Uh, last week, we talked about the mark of the beast. Week before that, we talked about a seven-headed beast and a dragon. Today, we're going to talk about a great prostitute of Babylon. Like, these are not normally the kinds of things we talk about in sermons. It's just a little different. Um, two, the series is different because if you've heard much teaching or preaching on Revelation, our approach to this might be a little different than you've heard before. Because what I've noticed is that when it comes to Revelation, a lot of people start really paying attention in chapter 4. Because chapter 4 introduces this, the first of many really strange things that you come across in this book. But what we're doing is we're focusing on the first three chapters, which most people just read right past, because the first three chapters give us what we call context. And when you read this book in context, everything starts to change because you start to understand what's really happening. And so the first three chapters teach us some really important things. It teaches us um, that this book was written to some real people in a real place, in a real time, with real struggles, real things that they're going through, and real things that they need to hear and understand. And so the first three chapters teach us that this book was written to seven churches that lived in these Roman cities, in the, what the Roman Empire called the province of Asia. Today, we call that modern-day Turkey. Here's a map that shows where these seven churches were located. They would have been geographically grouped together with similar things that they're all going through. Now, what we're doing each week is we're going to read one of the messages because the book opens with seven messages to these churches. So we're going to read one of those messages and then use that to springboard into some other parts of the book. And what happens is you're going to start to understand these other parts of the book, some of these weird things in the book, through the lens of the people who would have received this. And when you do that, you see that Revelation is not a book that's scary and intimidating and something to keep at arm's length, but rather this is a book of encouragement and hope and good news, especially to people who are suffering. So today's part four, we're going to read the fourth church. This is the church in Thyatira, so Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start reading verse 18. Here's the message of Jesus to these Christians in Thyatira. It says to the angel, could also be translated as messenger, of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, And whose feet are like burnished bronze. What a great image of Jesus. I love this. Because sometimes when people talk about Jesus, he, he sounds so meek and mild, almost like a wimp sometimes. But then here's Jesus, whose eyes are like fire and his feet are like bronze. And like, this guy means business. I just, I love this picture of Jesus. Verse 19, we keep reading. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. You are growing into the people God wants you to be. However, there's there's problems too. Here's the next thing, verse 20. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Now, we need to talk about this because probably there's not a woman in this church whose name is Jezebel. This is really a reference to the Old Testament. In in the Old Testament, there was a, a queen of Israel. She lived about, 800 years or so before Jesus, whose name was Jezebel. She was married to King Ahab. And the the claim to fame for Ahab and Jezebel was that they were the the main nemesis of Elijah, the prophet of the Lord. And so Jezebel, her life's work, she was trying to lead the people of Israel away from um, trusting and worshiping the Lord alone in order to worship a Canaanite false god named Baal. And as she's doing this, uh, she's trying to lead these people to worship the false god Baal. What, what that, what that meant was that Baal was the Canaanite god of rain, um, of storms, of fertility. And so if you want your crops to grow in an agricultural society like the Old Testament, then you needed to, you know, to have this god come through for you. So you would sacrifice or pray to him. And your sacrifices to him were, were often your own fertility. And so there's archaeological evidence that People who worshiped Baal would sacrifice their own children. It's like a wicked and gruesome thing. You don't want to be compared to Jezebel at all. You don't want to tolerate Jezebel because it's a wicked and gruesome thing that she led the people of Israel to do. But then this teaches us a few things about what's going on in Thyatira. I mean, these Christians in this city, there's there's something happening in this church that resembles this. There's there's something that's happening in this church where probably these Christians are, are being tempted to worship false gods. Now, there's a biblical word for that practice. I mean, we see it throughout the Bible. The biblical word for that is idolatry, right? There's there's some sense of idolatry that's taking place in this church. Now let's keep reading here to, to learn more about this. So Jesus says next, he says, "'By her teaching, she misleads my servants "'into sexual immorality, "'and the eating of food sacrificed to idols.'" as Jesus is talking about this challenge of idolatry in this church, twice he also talks about um, sexual practice. He mentioned sexual immorality and then he talks about adultery. Twice, he just bluntly says that. And this is a really common thing that happens in the scripture where where, um, idolatry is often talked about in terms of adultery which teaches us a little bit about how God views idolatry, the worship of idols. That idolatry, the worship of idols, is not just um, a, you know, another sin on a list of rules that you're breaking, but rather idolatry in the Scripture, throughout the pages of Scripture, is more like um, a spouse sacrificing the marriage relationship than it is just breaking another sin. This is what idolatry does, is it severs relationship Um, that we have with the Lord. And so the Bible takes this so incredibly seriously. And oftentimes when it talks about idolatry, it also talks about adultery. Let me give you an example. Um, One of the greatest examples of this is in the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea um, has a wife and she commits adultery. Um, He is working, he's gonna divorce her. uh, He's gonna send her away because of the breach of the marriage relationship. And when he's considering this, the Lord comes and speaks to Hosea to bring his wife back home because their marriage is going to be a sign to the people of Israel of the Lord's relationship with the people of Israel. And so here's what the Lord says to Hosea in chapter three. It says this, um, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulterer's. And then listen to this next line. Love her As the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. So there's this connection here that idolatry is like adultery in the sense that that there is a severance, a, a, a break of relationship. And this is just an example of what we see in many, many places in the Bible, where we see this kind of um, relationship. Explained that idolatry again. It's not just a sin that's a, on a list of other rules. This is this is something that is so serious because it's a it's a breach of relationship. It's a breach of relationship, and and this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks to these Christians in Thyatira. There's something here that's so. Um, important that you're 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 failing in because what it's not just you're breaking another rule, it's not just that you're you're committing sin, it's that there is a breach of relationship that we have with the Lord. Now, as you understand the depth of how the Bible talks about adultery, I mean I'm sorry, idolatry. And you see how it's connected to adultery because it's this break of relationship. Well it's no wonder then that when you read through the book of Revelation, you see this major theme of idolatry that is woven throughout the pages of of this book. I mean, it's a major thing that you see in multiple places. In fact, there's this figure that shows up in multiple places in Revelation that is leading the people away from uh, worshiping the Lord and not just the people, the whole earth, leading the whole earth away from worshiping the Lord in order to worship false gods. And this this figure shows up multiple places, it's a mysterious kind of figure, but as you understand this connection in the Bible between idolatry and adultery, it's no wonder that this figure is presented as a prostitute. Let me give you some examples of this. Different places you see this person. This is um, Revelation 14, verse eight. It says, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. That phrase, Babylon the great, is really important. This is a title for this person, this figure. And listen to what the Babylon the Great did. Um, she made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adultery. Now we're not talking about adultery. This we're really talking about idolatry, but this is the connection you see all the time. Babylon was an empire that conquered Jerusalem and uh, was was famous for its idol worship. And so what we're talking about here is it's 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 idolatry. Here's Revelation 17, verse 1. Another time you see this figure show up. Um Says, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. We're not really talking about adultery, we're talking about idolatry. That's this similar connection. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. And had seven heads and ten horns. This is the uh, beast that we talked about a few weeks ago. And in context, the book of Revelation, this beast has to be the Roman Empire. But really, on a deeper level, the beast is really any system or ideology that opposes the Lord. And here she is, this beast, is connected to this figure that is leading the nations, leading the world to worship false gods. Um, Keep reading here, verse four. It says, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet And was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth." Skip to chapter 18. Here's verse 3. It says, For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. Chapter 19, verse 2 says, He has condemned the great prostitute. He is the rider on the white horse who is faithful and true. That is Jesus. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Now, I just read a little bit from these chapters. Um, I just wanted to give you a sample of how you see this figure in different places throughout Revelation. So I encourage you to go back and read those chapters in full and you can see how the Bible um, talks about her. But as you you read through this, this book of Revelation, you see this figure who's tempting the world into adultery, which you realize what they're really talking about here is this tempting the world into idolatry to the worship of false gods, to, to the breach of relationship with the Lord, that this is really what this, this, this figure is doing as it leads the world through this. Now, of course, there are people who spend lots and lots of time and write lots and lots of books about who this figure is and, and how it is that she is able to do this and what it's going to look like. And we love to speculate in all these kinds of things about what it's going to mean um, in the future. But, but as you look at this through the lens of a first century Christian, who lived in a Roman province in a city like Thyatira, it, it makes perfect sense why the Bible would talk about the temptation of idolatry like this. Because if you lived in Thyatira in, in the first century, idolatry was everywhere. I mean, it was it was all over the place and you had idols all over the place. And this was just the world that you lived in. And as you looked out upon the world, you would have seen that this was just how the world lived, that everyone had their own gods and were serving their own gods, and you saw this idolatry absolutely everywhere, you would have understood this really fundamental point of the Bible, that idolatry is really like the main temptation that faces humanity. This is everywhere that you would have looked. Now, you and I, of course, don't live in Thyatira, in the late first century we we live in springfield in 2022 right we we live here now and, and and when we look at the world we don't see idolatry everywhere and you 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 would be understood I'd understand if you you know pushed back at what I was saying right now and and were like come on spencer i mean Really, idolatry is like the main temptation of humanity because I, you know, I don't have one little statue in my house that I pray to or bow down to. Like, like you might be thinking to yourself, I might be overstating this a little bit that this is you know, not really that big a deal. Maybe it was back then, but not today. And, and if that's kind of how you feel about that, I would just push back just a little bit and say, are you sure? Because let's think about idolatry for just a few minutes here. Let's think about what this means and how the Bible talks about idolatry because, because idolatry is way more common than we think it is. First of all, we have to understand that idolatry, like every other struggle we have in life to be faithful, is always much more subtle than you realize. Like the struggle for Christian faithfulness is, is always dealt with things that are much more subtle than we realize. And this is true for idol worship. That idol worship is not always this obvious thing that you see that sometimes it's just it's more subtle that you have to think about. Let's, let's think about idol worship and let me give you a few different ways of thinking about idol worship that might be a little different than you think it is. And um, we'll start with a historical example. So let's talk about what idol worship would have been in Thyatira. Thyatira was well known in the first century for uh, metalworking and uh, wool production. And if you wanted to um, sell your goods, uh, your metalworking or your wool in the market, well, you would have had to have belonged to a trade guild. Trade guilds controlled the markets in the Roman Empire in the first century. Every Roman city was controlled by these. Now, the trade guilds were usually associated, really not usually, were always associated with um, a Roman or a Greek god. They kind of served or represented these these Greek gods. Um, different trade guilds had different gods. And as you would go to a trade guild meeting, um, you're not just talking about the business of the trade guild what's happening in the market you would also have time at these meetings to to worship these gods and it wasn't an obvious kind of thing like hey i'm going to the you know the, to go worship apollo or artemis or whatever greek god it is it's it's much more subtle than that because as you would gather together with those in your industry um, you would be honoring your god of your trade that might include um, saying prayers to this god it would usually include a feast or some sort of meal that was given where everyone would be expected to bring meat that would be sacrificed then to that idol, which is what we read about the Christians in Thyatira. They're eating food sacrificed to idols. That's what we're talking about here. And so if you're a Christian in the first century, you believe that Jesus is Lord of all, right? He, he's the creator of all. He is the true God. He is the one who's come to save everyone. But then you also live in the city where there would have been an incredible temptation to, to set that aside, that conviction aside in order to participate in things like your trade guild, in order to sell in the market. And you would have had this incredibly hard choice to make. Do I continue to hold on to my convictions of what is true, that Jesus is Lord of all? Or do I Go along with what everyone is doing, and even though I don't believe that these gods are real, or even if I actually believe they're harmful because they're leading people astray, or do I go that direction? This choice of of how am I gonna navigate those that decision is is a choice that comes with a real consequence. Do I sacrifice what I believe, or do I hold on to what I believe, even if it means I lose access to the markets and now have to live, my family has to live in poverty? This is the temptation that's before them. So what would you do? This reminds me of one of my favorite um, stories. Um, One of my favorite all-time athletes is named Eric Little. Maybe not someone you've heard about, but Eric Little was made famous in 1981 from a movie called Chariots of Fire. And in case you don't remember Chariots of Fire because it's a 41-year-old movie or you have never seen it, here's the, the basic plot line. Um, Eric Little is a British sprinter in 1924 Olympics. Um, He's favored to win the 100 meters, which is the one stretch of the track, the the main sprint event of the track. He's the favorite in the world to win this, but he's got a problem because a few weeks before the Olympics, the schedule for the races come out and the schedule for the qualifying rounds for the 100, not the final, but to qualify for the final, are gonna be held on a Sunday. Now for Eric, this is a non-starter. He's a committed Christian. In fact, after the Olympics, he's going to move to China. He'll become a missionary where he'll serve until the Japanese invade China during World War II. He'll be caught up in that invasion. Many of his, his uh, other missionary friends would have already gone home, but he stayed and he'll be caught up in that invasion, um, be sent to a prison camp where he'll eventually be executed shortly before the end of the war. But in 1924, he's got this question. The Olympics are here. It's my life's goal. I've been working at this my whole life. Do I run or do I not? Now, for him, it's this question of, of conviction, of, of am I going to, to live in the way that I know honors God because God wants the Sunday to be a, a day of rest, a day of holiness. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments for crying out loud. I mean, like, it's a big deal. For him, it's this conviction that I, if I run on Sunday, then I am disobeying, I'm dishonoring God. Or do I go ahead and, and sacrifice my conviction or sacrifice what I know is true in order to, to achieve this goal? Like, this is a, a real choice that he has to make of like, what am I going to do with what I know is true and this conviction I have? Like, what would you do? What would you do? Now, the story of Eric Little might not sound like it, but this is a story of idolatry. Because what idolatry really is, it's, it's not about praying to little idols or what you say to statues or burning incense to statues. That's not really what idolatry is. What idolatry really is, it is it's about what comes first in my life. And sometimes we may say things come first in our life, but you know how you really know what comes first in your life? Well, it comes first. What comes first is what really comes first. Like when push comes to shove and you have to make a decision between this or that, competing values, what comes first? What comes first is like, what's the first thing on my calendar? What's the first thing I spend money on? What's the first thing that, that I strive for? My first goal in my life. Like, these are the kinds of things that, that start to, to show you what comes first. And idolatry is really to the temptation to put other things besides the Lord first. Author Tim Keller, um, Pastor Tim Keller writes about the modern day idolatry and he describes it really well in a great book called Counterfeit Gods. But here's how he describes it. He says, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. He says, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Now, I love the way that he presents this here because what he's talking about is what comes first. I mean, do you, do you put, your, you sacrifice your family, your marriage for your job, Well, you have an idol, do you, do you let the culture tell you about your, your beauty, your worth, your value? You, you have an idol. Do, do you um, spend your time keeping up with the Joneses, comparing yourself to other people all the time so that that drives your decision making? Well, you, you have an idol. Do you, uh, do you schedule yourself with all kinds of activities, especially the kinds of things that pull you away from worship and fellowship with God's people? Well, listen you have an idol. The thing about idolatry is it's much more subtle than you realize because idolatry comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. It can be job. It can be success. It can be career. It can be money. It can be image and reputation and having people like us. It can be social media. It can be our phones. It can be entertainment. It can be sports. It can be food. It can be politics. There's all kinds of things that we begin and are tempted to put first in our life. And this is why I love the story of Eric Little, because he has this question of when push comes to shove, what's going to come first? So it's 1924. It's the Olympics. If you've seen the movie, you know the decision that he makes. He declines to run. His coach is furious. His teammates are furious. The papers back home just rip him apart because he's making this decision. They call him uh, terrible things. They accuse his patriotism of of not supporting his country. Just terrible things that that he has to pay the cost because he said, no, 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 no. I've got to be obedient to God before anything else. This has to come first. So Eric Little does the unthinkable and he he, uh, he just declines to run. Instead, he opts for another race, the 400 meters, which he's not trained for. He's not planned for. He's not, he's not ready for it. He doesn't have the stamina for it. And somehow he gets out of the qualifying heats and he qualifies for the final. Somehow it's quite miraculous. And as he's going to the, to the starting line for the finals, an American competitor comes up to him and hands him a note that's folded over and he opens the note and it's a quote from the Bible from 1 Samuel that just simply says those who honor me I will honor. Eric Little Legend says tucks it into his shoe he goes to the starting blocks the gun goes off he's in the worst lane because he has the slowest qualifying time into the finals and against all odds he does the impossible he wins the gold and he sets a world record that lasts 12 years. I love that story. Because here's a real example of what do you do when push comes to shove? It's what you know is true versus what is easier. It's, it's this question of am I willing to set aside the things I yearn for, the things I desire, my own, my own ambitions, am I willing to set those on the back burner in order to be faithful to God? This is the question of idolatry. Because what the Lord requires of us, what the Lord calls for us is to be completely and fully devoted to him, that he comes first. Now come back to Revelation chapter two, because each one of these messages, these churches, ends with a promise. And here's the promise that Jesus speaks to those who are struggling to put God first. Jesus says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you, who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star, which is a usually a a way of talking about Jesus, that he is the the morning star, the first glimmer of light in a dark world. And then finally, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, had a short little prayer that he wrote in response to the message to the church in Thyatira. This is a great way for us to end today. Here's John Wesley's prayer. He said, thou, O Jesus, art the morning star. Oh, give thyself to me. Then will I desire no other son, only thee. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would give yourself to us, that there would be nothing that competes to who you are. May you come first in our life. Not job, not image, not politics, not not substances or or sin, nothing else to come first, that you are the one who comes first. And so Lord, would you challenge us in these places where maybe other things have been creeping up and maybe it's subtle and we don't even realize it, but we need to ask ourselves, what comes first? And how do we know what comes first? Well, very simply, because it comes first. Lord, we thank you that you call us to a relationship with you is fully devoted to following you no matter the cost. And may we be those who no matter what it costs us, we are willing to say you and your ways, they come first. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.
0: Hey friends, thanks for joining us in Worship Today. We're so glad you took some time out of what's happening in your life to tune in, to worship with other, other followers of Christ. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ, but you're inquisitive. And so we're thankful that you tuned in to hear God give a word to, to you and to your world. If you found something encouraging today, something challenging, and something maybe you think would would be helpful to somebody else, we encourage you to take a moment, share it on social media. You know how to do that. A big thank you today. To the people who were on both sides of the camera who helped bring this worship experience together. To our creative team, communications team, to Alec and others, a big thank you. To Stephanie for the the announcements, to our worship team, to the folks who answered and said hello in the chat room and to the prayer team, a big thanks. To Spencer for that word. Um, Again, thanks for joining us in worship. We hope and pray that you're encouraged, build up in the Lord and following the Lord each and every day. Now may the Lord bless you, keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And until next week, the Lord's peace be among you.
5: for, you are famous for, I believe. unstoppable. All things are possible in you. God of exceedingly, God of abundantly, more than we ask or think, Lord, you will never fail. Your name is powerful. Your word's unstoppable. All things are possible.